Welcome to the Equine Veterinary Education Podcasts. Welcome to a new edition of the Equine Veterinary Education Podcast. I'm your host, Timo Pranger. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with one of the world's most renowned experts in equine orthopedics, Dr. Sue Dyson. Dr. Dyson recently left her position as the head of clinical orthopedics at the Animal Health Trust Center for Equine Studies in Newmarket, England, and is now working independently. I'm not going to spend much more time introducing Dr. Dyson simply because I don't think that's necessary. If you're an equine vet and you haven't come across any of her 230 plus publications open to a book on diagnosis and management of lameness in the horse or attended any of Dr. Dyson's lectures and international conferences, you must have lived under a pretty big rock. Good morning, Sue. Thank you very much for taking the time to record this podcast today. It's a pleasure. So I would like to talk to you about one of your recent publications in EVE titled Unexplained Fallen Lameness Possibly Associated with Radiculopathy. There are a few words in this title that caught my attention. First, unexplained fallen lameness, and second, radiculopathy. And it might be helpful for our listeners to explain the latter term briefly before we get started. Radiculopathy refers to injury or irritation of a spinal nerve root and is a well-reported cause of lower back and leg pain in humans. However, reports on spinal nerve pathology in horses are rarity, and we know little about potential clinical symptoms of nerve root injury in horses. So reading radiculopathy in the title of a clinical paper is pretty exciting. I also think it is important to talk about the fact that there are still lamenesses of unknown origin, despite the substantial advances, especially in diagnostic imaging that we have experienced in our profession over the last decades. Sue, could you briefly talk about how these advances, and which ones in particular, have improved our ability to identify the cause of particular fall in lameness since you began your career in veterinary medicine? Well, I'm going to show my age somewhat because when I graduated in 1980, there was no musculoskeletal ultrasonography. And ultrasonography, particularly well-performed, I think has made a profound difference in our ability to identify soft tissue lesions that we were previously unaware of. So overall, I think that's my number one. Um, I did think that when skeletal scintigraphy was introduced, it was going to potentially revolutionize my diagnosis of the difficult lameness cases. And whilst it does in a very small proportion of sports horses, in most sports horses, I think it is extremely disappointing and can be entirely misleading. I think in the racehorse, it's a different situation. It's much more valuable in, in the racehorse. I think we must not underrate high-quality radiography. I think since, uh, since the advent of computed and digital radiography and the improvement in image quality, uh, we are learning a lot more than we did previously. I think, of course, MRI has revolutionized our ability to detect particularly soft tissue injuries in the, in the distal aspect of the limb and um, the so-called onedema or the increased signal intensity in fat suppressed images. But I think it has also created lots of unanswered questions because we don't always understand how to interpret what we see because we can find some abnormalities in clinically sound horses. And I feel very strongly that it's the clinical assessment and diagnostic anesthesia that are crucial for diagnosis. 
And we have to keep going back to look at the horse, looking at the horse carefully under a variety of different circumstances. We know from human imaging that findings on imaging are not necessarily of clinical significance. So we have to keep going back to the patient and listening to the patient. Thank you. Um, I think that's very interesting. And something we also um, always try to relate to our students is that everything starts and ends with the clinical um, examination and the clinical evaluation of the case. And I think that's very important to still emphasize even um, at times where we have more imaging than we ever had before. Um, the first sentence in the introduction of your publication is, there are limited reports of fall limb lameness attributable to primary neck pain. Looking back at the literature, how were these cases, so horses with fall limb lameness caused by primary neck pain, typically diagnosed? Well, there's not much literature there, and most of it's related to me. Um, <laughs> the first paper was by Riccardi and myself, and we had horses that did not respond to diagnostic anesthesia of the forelimb. Uh, the majority of them, there were only eight horses, had evidence of neck pain or stiffness and localized muscle atrophy in the caudal neck region. And we found fairly dramatic radiological abnormalities in all of those horses. Uh, one of them was humanely destroyed, and we did confirm nerve root compression um, in that horse. Uh, interestingly, four of the eight horses showed evidence of um, an abnormal posture at times, what we call the root signature, which I think we're going to talk a little bit more about later. Yes. Um, we then, um, together with uh, Rosotto, described a series of horses with uh, what we called an idiopathic hopping type forelimb lameness in ridden horses. And these were, again, horses with a rather odd gait abnormality that was only seen ridden. Um, these horses, again, failed to respond to diagnostic anesthesia of the entire limb. And in fact, paradoxically, a proportion of them got worse after diagnostic analgesia rather than improving. Uh, these horses also underwent radiographic examination, scintigraphy, um, so scintigraphy was inconclusive in all of them, and there were more than 40 horses in this series. Um, the majority did have radiological abnormalities of the caudal neck region, but these were less than we saw in the Ricardian Dyson original study. And again, in a small proportion of horses, we were able to document the presence of cervical radiculopathy based on uh, histological examination post-mortem. And there's really not much else up there in the literature. No, it is true. Yes, I went through the, your references and as well as I, I did a literature research, uh, search. And that's exactly, uh, that's exactly right. And I think that's one of the issues because it is very hard to diagnose, to really come up with that, um, uh, that, that diagnosis. So what was the purpose of, of this, this current study? And what did you do this time that had not done, been done before in the previous studies that you just outlined? Well, it's Sod's law that as soon as you publish a paper, you see something that differs from your conclusions. And as soon as the idiopathic hopping type lameness in ridden horses paper was published, I saw a horse which did exactly the same sort of gait on the lunge and not when ridden. The horse showed other abnormalities when ridden. It didn't want to turn to the left and it tried to run off in the opposite direction. 
Um, but this was clearly different. But like all the other horses, did not respond to diagnostic anesthesia of the limb and actually got worse. Um, I had then also seen um, over the last 10 years or so, um, a number of other horses with uh, a more conventional fallen lameness. Um, and I felt that there were some similarities amongst the horses, and I felt that this needed to be documented. Uh, so, and what we did differently this time was um, applying what we call the ridden horse ethogram. And the reason for this was when I first submitted the hopping type paper to EVJ, the referees were adamant that this was not a pain-related problem because we had failed to abolish the lameness by diagnostic anesthesia and the horses were unresponsive to non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. And I felt absolutely adamantly that it was a pain-induced problem because I had ridden many of these horses and they could be trotting along quite happily and then they would start to hop and they would become less, much less willing and they would put their ears back and clearly to me were in discomfort. So as a result, um, there was a difference of opinion between me and the referees. So I read the paper from EBJ and submitted it to Eve and again had a little bit of a battle because the referees were also skeptical about the presence or absence of pain. So subsequent to that, we developed the ridden horse ethogram, and we have been able to demonstrate that this is a good way of defining the presence or likely absence of musculoskeletal pain. And so we therefore, in a subset of the horses in the current paper, of which we had video recordings, we were able to apply the ridden horse ethogram retrospectively to um, validate the fact that they were likely to be experiencing pain. Could you briefly, um, for our listeners, explain, and I had to do some um, reading myself to, to learn about ethograms. Could you briefly explain what an ethogram is and how the one that you used is applied in the ridden horse? So an ethogram is a catalogue of behaviours, each of which have strict definitions. And we started uh, by looking at video recordings of lame and sound horses. And we initiated an ethogram which had 117 different behaviors, which was obviously unwieldy. But we were able to refine this to 24 behaviors, which we were able to demonstrate were 10 times more likely to be seen in lame horses compared with non-lame horses. And the types of behavior that we're talking about are, for example, the ears being back for more than five seconds, the tail swishing vigorously, the horse having a persistent toe drag. So we have used this 24 behavior ethogram in a number of different studies. And we have shown that both the mean and median score for non-lame horses is only two out of 24. We have also demonstrated that the display of eight or more behaviors within a five to seven minute work period is likely to reflect the presence of musculoskeletal pain, irrespective of the source of pain. And uh, although there are some 
name horses which have mild lameness or are particularly stoical, which score less than eight, the majority of lame horses, when ridden, exhibit eight or more behaviours. So we apply the ethogram for at least five minutes of ridden exercise and then sum the number of behaviours and have, therefore, the likelihood of the presence or absence of pain. Oh, very interesting. That's um, a nice way of making this or giving this a number, um, quantitating this issue. So let's get finally to your study. Can you talk about the inclusion criteria and the clinical workup that the horses in the study underwent? So we had three groups of horses. We had groups of horse, a group of horses which showed um, this idiopathic hopping type lameness only when ridden, of which there were nine. We had uh, two horses which showed a hopping type lameness on the lunge. And then we had 14 horses uh, which had a more conventional type of lameness, but in which diagnostic anesthesia of the entire limb did not um, improve the lameness. So all of these horses, the, the unifying factor was no response to their lameness for local analgesia of the entire limb. So all of the horses underwent a comprehensive clinical assessment um, at rest, looking particularly at things like muscle development, uh, neck flexibility, um, the response to palpation of um, the neck in a systematic way, both before and after exercise. The horses were evaluated in hand, turning in small circles, in re reversing, and also on the lunge in both trot and canter. And all of the horses were also evaluated ridden in walk, trot and canter, both being worked to a contact that is with rein tension and also with no rein tension that's on a long rein. And then we performed diagnostic anesthesia. Uh, some horses will have had the entire limb block starting at the, with a palmar digital block and working progressively upwards to include intraarticular analgesia of both the elbow and shoulder joints. In other horses, we will have uh, performed initially um, a palmar block at the base of the proximal sesamoid bones, and then followed that by median and ulnar blocks, and then intraarticular analgesia of the elbow and shoulder joints. And a small proportion of the horses also underwent ultrasound-guided uh, anesthesia of a caudal articular process joint in the cervical region. What about um, diagnostic imaging? Um, you already mentioned ultrasound-guided injections, but what about general diagnostic imaging? And were you able to complete post-mortem post -mortem examinations in any of the horses? You mentioned that you did this in a previous study and you had some interesting findings. Yes, all the horses underwent radiographic examination of the cervical and cranial thoracic vertebrae and also the elbow and shoulder joints and the sternum and cranial ribs. All of the horses underwent uh, examination ultrasonographically of the caudal aspect of the neck with comprehensive evaluation of the shoulder and elbow regions as well. Only four horses underwent scintigraphy because of our previous experience of, this, of scintigraphy being negative in the majority of horses with this type of clinical presentation. And a number of the clients had financial restraints, constraints. Um, with respect to post-mortem examination, 
we were able to perform post-mortem examination in three horses. And this involved um, careful dissection of the entire neck uh, to include removal of the spinal cord and the nerve roots. And this is a pretty long and laborious process, I can tell you. We also in the brachial plexus, we opened up all the limb joints. Uh, we um, transected all relevant muscles. And then finally, we boiled out the caudal cervical and cranial thoracic vertebrae so that we could inspect the bones um, free of the soft tissues. Yeah, that sounds like a very time-consuming process. Um, so now we come to the findings. And um, those are documented in excellent detail in the article. And um, this is one, only one of the many reasons why I encourage our listeners to read the actual publication. It will be free to access for one month following the broadcasting of this podcast. Unfortunately, we do not have the time to discuss every aspect of the clinical features here today, but they are a crucial part of this study. So Sue, could you summarize the most important clinical findings for our listeners? In other words, what findings during an examination of a horse with fallen lameness should make an equine practitioner start to think about the neck as the underlying problem? Uh, first of all, I look at the neck musculature relative to the muscle development elsewhere in the horse. And if the caudal neck region is poorly muscled, then this is a clue. Um, similarly, if there is limited neck flexibility, this is a feature in some horses, but I think we see variability and ability to move the neck amongst normal horses as well. So that is not um, by any way pathognomonic for the presence or absence of neck pain. I do think that careful palpation of the neck and evaluating the response to both light pressure and very firm pressure in the region of the articular process joints can be valuable. And some of the horses in this series did show uh, differences in the reaction comparing pre and post exercise with horses being more likely to show pain after exercise. With respect to the lameness, in the majority of the horses, the lameness was uh, most obvious ridden. And in those with the hopping type lameness, in the majority, it was only seen ridden. What is interesting about this lameness is that it frequently varies in degree depending upon the position of the head and neck. So some horses, when ridden to a contact, it so-called on the bit, showed more severe lameness than when on a long rein, whereas other horses showed more severe lameness when on a long rein compared with being ridden with rein tension. And that is, I think, quite an unusual feature. Another unusual feature is their tendency to tilt the head and or the neck as well. And some of the horses would toss their head and necks episodically, which is, again, somewhat unusual. Uh, some of the horses showed a propensity to stumble in front. That is not unique to this condition, but I think should alert a clinician to the possibility of a neck-related problem. The horses with the uh, idiopathic hopping-type lameness showed great variability in their lameness, both within and among examination periods, and I think that's important to recognize. And they become unwilling to go forwards freely 
when the lameness is at its worst. I think that's a, a general summary. Right. And would, could you now at this time also talk a little about the results of the written horse ethogram and the pain behavior scoring, what you found there? I think you mentioned that earlier yes. quite a bit, but perhaps a bit more specific for this study. Yeah, um, we had 13 horses, which we, of which we had adequate video footage um, to apply the ethogram. And those 13 horses had a median score of nine out of the 24 behaviors. So that median score exceeds the threshold of eight or more. Uh, and the range was between seven and 11 of the 24 behaviors. So to my mind, that shows pretty conclusively that these horses are experiencing musculoskeletal pain. Um, and when you did the diagnostic analgesia in these horses, what were the most remarkable findings? I, I, I know one thing that really stood out to me, and um, I'm wondering if you're going to bring that up. Otherwise, I'll have to ask specifically for your thoughts on that. Well, 76% of the horses showed deterioration in their lameness after one or more of the local analgesia. Yeah, that's exactly techniques. what I was thinking about. And I think that uh, whilst we sometimes see a horse, for example, with foot-related pain, that you block the foot um, and... Oh, it, it, sorry, start again. We have some horses which don't have foot-related pain. You block the foot and they get worse. Uh, and they may have proximal suspensory pathology. And so I think that they are then loading the foot more normally and exacerbating pain associated with the suspensory ligament. So we recognize that. But these horses showed a greater degree of lameness than I would normally see in the situation with proximal suspensory vitamitis. They were um, in deteriorating between one and three grades on my scale of zero to eight lameness. So a deterioration of three grades of lameness, I think, is quite remarkable. Mm -hmm. um, and in addition, we had two horses which developed following analgesia of either the shoulder joint or the elbow joint, respectively. They developed an obvious toe drag of the lame limb at the walk. Uh, and one of the owners actually commented that she had observed this behavior according, occurring spontaneously in her horse sometime previously. So I think both of those aspects are quite remarkable. So what were the diagnostic imaging findings? As a reminder for the listeners, so radiographs of the cervical and cranial thoracic vertebrae, the shoulder and elbow joints, cranial ribs, and the sternum were taken on all horses. And in all cases, an ultrasonographic assessment of the caudal neck, shoulder, and elbow was performed. And for more horses or four of the horses underwent nuclear scintigraphy. So what did you see? Well, in two horses, we found absolutely nothing. Uh, had one horse which had quite marked subluxation of the C7-T1 intervertebral articulation. Uh, a large proportion of the horses showed evidence of either moderate or severe osteoarthritis of the caudal, cervical, or cranial thoracic articular process joints. But uh, when we compared left and right oblique images, the severity of the change comparing left and right sides and the side of the lameness didn't always coincide. So that was somewhat confusing. 
Um, the scintigraphic evaluation was negative in the four horses on which it was performed. With respect to ultrasonography, we had two horses which showed some evidence of fibrotic myopathy, one in the descending pectoral muscle and another in brachiocephalicus. But infiltration of local anesthetic solution around this area of fibrosis made no difference to the lameness. Uh, 13 of the horses did show some enlargement of the articular process joints with joint capsule thickening. Um, but again, there were no specific differences between the non-lame side and the lame side. So, and lastly, could you tell us about the post-mortem findings in the three horses that were examined where you did a very thorough, as you explained earlier, um, necropsy? Yeah, so we had one horse which was a horse which hopped on the lunge, and that had subluxation between C7 and T1, and it had gross discoloration of the first thoracic nerve once it had exited the intervertebral foramen and on, his, on the lame side. And histological evaluation showed uh, Wallerian degeneration with changes in the myelin sheath and irregular swelling of axons. Um, another two horses showed Wallerian degeneration with losses of the myelin sheath and other changes consistent with neuropathy, including spheroid presence and the presence of gitter cells. Um, these were more extensive on the side of the lame limb than the non-lame limb. And this one might be hard to answer, but you just alluded to that, to that a little bit in one case. Um, and it, I think it's an interesting point. So at what level was the spinal nerve root pathology located? Was it most severe at the level of the intervertebral foramen, so where the nerve basically exits the vertebral canal, um, and where the nerve is very close um, to the articular process joints, the joints that people also call the facet joints, so the little synovial joints that connect the vertebrae? Um, was it close to the origin from the spinal cord, or did the pathology spread over a greater length of the nerve? No, it was mostly within the region of the intervertebral foramen and outside the intervertebral foramen. I think means that even if you were to have one of the rare horses when there was anything gross to see, the likelihood of seeing anything if you were to uh, insert an arthroscope into the epidural space is pretty small. And what did the articular process joints um, associated with these abnormal spinal nerves look like? Well, they were enlarged to a variable extent. They had short pedicles, which meant that the articular process joints were close to the vertebral bodies, which meant that the dorsoventral diameter of the intervertebral foramina was small. But I don't think that that necessarily means there's actual compression there, in that we have to understand that the intervertebral foramina are oblique structures um, going from craniodorsal to cordoventral. And it's also, I think, incredibly difficult to evaluate when you do a post-mortem examination um, how much soft tissue proliferation there is because the nerve roots are remarkably tightly um, bound by soft tissues within those intervertebral foramen. So the dissection is, makes it very difficult to determine if there's an abnormal amount of soft tissue proliferation. Very good. Yeah, that's exactly what I was um, wondering about and I, I wanted to hear your thoughts on. 
Um, so let's move on to the discussion. And there were many interesting paragraphs. Um, I would like to pick a few topics for us to discuss. First, um, head and neck tilt was found in six of the 25 horses, illustrated by photographs in the article. You describe an interesting correlation between the side the horse was laying in and the direction of the head tilt. What was that correlation and what do you make of it, if anything? Well, it was interesting that in all of the horses which had a head tilt, they consistently tipped the head with the nose pointing away from the lame limb. So if they were lame on the right forelimb, their nose would tip to the left and the pole would tip to the right. And often the rider would say that they had abnormal rein tension in one rein because of this head and neck posture. Uh, this head tilt was often worse in canter than it was in trot. And one horse had a head tilt when it was ridden to a contact. And when it was ridden to a contact, you couldn't see any lameness. However, when you let the horse uh, be ridden without rein tension, that's on a long rein, the horse held its head and neck in a straight uh, posture. But the horse, had, uh, under those circumstances, showed lameness. So I can only presume that the head and neck posture is an adaptation to pain. And the horse is trying to minimize that pain. Interestingly, the two horses which showed uh, root signature, um, when they were exp experiencing pain, which induced that posture, they actually turned their head and neck slightly towards the lame side, which is different. Yes, this is a good point to go back to that root signature posture you mentioned at the beginning. That term might be more familiar to small animal practitioners. Um, can you tell us briefly about the posture? What does it mean or what do we think it means? What does it look like and what is it supposed to indicate? Well, the root posture is the horse or a small animal um, holds its limb in a semi-flexed position with only the toe on the ground so with the fetlock and carpus semi-flexed and the elbow slightly dropped. And it is considered to be pathognomonic of compressive radiculopathy in, in small animals. Um, however, I have seen it in a single horse which had a mediastinal abscess. So in the horse, I don't think it's pathognomonic, but it must be highly suggestive of nerve root compression. Interestingly, one of the two horses which showed this um, behavior um, also showed focal allodynia in the caudal neck region when it was exhibiting this posture. So that meant when you lightly touch the caudal neck region on the side of the lame limb, the horse showed an extreme pain reaction. And as I say, when we go compare in this study, we had two horses which showed this um, root signature. Whereas in our original Riccardi and Dyson study of eight horses, we had 50% which showed this root signature. But it's not common. So you cannot rely on it, but when you see it, it should uh, raise a flag and you should think about this as a possible issue. The Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, it all comes back to the clinical exam. I mean, this is clearly what we're learning here. The imaging is great, but it comes down to um, a thorough clinical examination. Um, you mentioned this number earlier that 76% um, of the horses showed exacerbation of lameness after diagnostic analgesia. Why do you think they did that or they showed that? Well, I've discussed this with a number of different neurologists, including Professor Joe Mayhew. And the consensus is that 
Um, when we perform diagnostic anesthesia, we have reduced proprioceptive input to the brain. And as a result of that, we have altered neural feedback loops and therefore an alteration of gait. Um, I don't think we can be any more specific than that, but this was the most common feature among all the horses in this study. Do um, you describe a high proportion of horses in this study that had severe or moderate modeling of the caudal, cervical, and craniothoracic articular process joints consistent with osteoarthritis? I have two questions to that. Um, and the second one you kind of answered already. Uh, how and in what situation position might these changes affect the horse and its ability to perform? And then second, we might not really have to go into this any further uh, than you already did. Do you think the problem is primarily arthritis or is nerve impingement more often an issue than we might realize? Well, I'm going to ask the second question first and say I think that the compressive radiculopathy is probably of uh, more importance um, obviously, we need, need more evidence to support the presence of, of compression of the nerve roots, but I think it is likely to be um, more important than the osteoarthritis per se. Um, we've been doing a prospective clinical study, um, acquiring radiographs of the caudal, cervical, and cranial thoracic regions in all horses that we've been examining, and there is a remarkable spectrum of radiological change in horses with absolutely no clinical signs related to their neck. So I think we have to be very cautious about the interpretation of the radiological signs uh, on their own, because I think we can overinterpret their potential significance. Now, obviously, there is the, uh, I can't exclude the possibility of direct joint pain contributing to discomfort and poor performance. But I find it difficult to attribute the unilateral lameness exclusively to osteoarthritis. Mm -hmm. And then the first part of the question, or the first question, in what situation or position might these changes of the um, joints that you found affect the horse and its ability to perform? Well, I think that's tough because we saw that in some horses, when they were worked with their head and neck in a raised position um, and on the bit, their lameness was worse than when they were ridden on a long rein with their head and neck lower. Whereas in other horses, when their heads and necks were lower, um, mm -hmm. the lameness was accentuated. So I don't think we've got a clear biomechanical explanation for this at the moment. And it appears that at the end of the study, you conclude that we need to find a way to diagnose nerve root injury in clinical cases. And which imaging modality or other diagnostic tool do you think will allow us to do exactly this? And how soon do you think it will be available to the equine clinician? And I think that's a very difficult question to answer, um, if possible at all. But I would like to hear your thoughts on that. Uh, I think that um, if we had MRI... Field mm -hmm. MRI that we could use to evaluate the caudal, cervical, and cranial thoracic area, that would probably be the gold standard. But we're a long way off that, I think. Uh, we can examine that area using CT, 
and CT myelography is being performed, but you cannot properly evaluate the cervical and cranial thoracic nerve roots using that technique. So that- Yeah, and as you said, the osteoarthritic changes don't necessarily correlate, or the severity of those changes um, doesn't necessarily correlate with what you see in the soft tissue that surrounds it, specifically um, in the nerve root, correct? Absolutely, absolutely. So I think probably the the, the, the technique with the most potential um, in the uh, immediate or short-term future or medium-term future is probably electromyography. Um, but you've got to have good kit, and good kit is very expensive. Um, and we also need to realize that interpretation is not necessarily straightforward because the motor unit potentials can be altered by head and neck position. Um, but um, Dr. Monica Alman at UC Davis has um, a very nice and expensive unit and feels that she has been able to document the likely presence of nerve root pathology using electromyography, which has fitted well with the, uh, the rest of her clinical diagnosis. So I th yeah, I think what I understand the from the electromyography is that it's also very much depends on the experience of the examiner, perhaps even more than all the other image or diagnostic tools we use, correct? Because the positioning of the neck and all of that plays a role. So just doing a, an exam and then sending the material to someone to evaluate it might not be possible. Absolutely. I think it is very user dependent and you have to be very strict in your interpretation um, because movement of the horse can influence the recordings. You've got to be very, very careful that you are comparing left and right sides um, and be strictly controlled. Well, thank you very much. Those were all the questions that I had. Um, unless you want to add anything else, then um, this would conclude our podcast today. I wanted to thank you very much for taking your time doing that, and I'm sure our listeners will enjoy it. You're very welcome. Thank you for listening to this equine veterinary education podcast. More on the subjects discussed in this podcast can be found online at wileyonlinelibrary.com forward slash journal forward slash eve.